Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Through the Frame. I'm your host, Jesse Carosi, and this podcast has been brought to you by the HPA. For those that are not familiar with who the HPA is, please check us out at hpaonline.com. The HPA Net Committee has a lot of great virtual content coming out, so be sure to check out what's new on our site. For anyone tuning in for the first time that are also not familiar with who the HPA is, they're a nonprofit member association that connects businesses and individuals. But if you want a more in-depth verbal breakdown of who they are, or who I am for that matter, check out episode one of this podcast series. So we're here today to talk about remastering the 90s television show Charmed that incorporated the use of some machine learning and other cool new technology and processes to make this happen. I'm sure many of you have seen old TV shows popping up on Netflix or other streaming services now all of a sudden in HD or maybe even 4K. And I think you'd be surprised at some of the challenges faced when making this happen as a post facility. So here with us today to reveal just that is Brian Drown and Chris Hyatt. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. Hello, Jesse. All right. So quick little background on these guys. Brian is the chief engineer at Keep Me Posted, which is a division of Photochem, and has worked on lots of jobs from Bob's Burgers, Homeland, Ray Donovan, Santa Clarita Diet, and many more. And Chris is a motion graphics effects artist at Keep Me Posted, having worked on various Disney promos, The Breaking Bad, and El Camino titles, Shameless, Better Call Saul, and many more. So we're here today to talk about remastering, as I said, but specifically on Charmed. So this is a job that had eight seasons. It spanned from 1998 to 2006 with 22 episodes per season, making a total of 178 episodes. So the Keep Me Posted team had three years to remaster all of these, which is a massive project. So I think a good way to tackle this, considering this is a pretty large subject, would be to go through this linearly, beginning to end in order of operation. For anyone not deeply ingrained in post-production, I'll kick this off by introducing one of the first of many problems that are kind of a big deal in my mind for these shows. You know, they often had laid off their final product to a tape. That tape went onto a shelf in a vault somewhere. They would have then stored all of the raw film negative, or maybe all of the tapes that they originally shot on if it was shot on tape, and those were two separate assets, the negative and the finished product. So however that master tape for the finished show, it, it doesn't connect in any way back to the raw footage captured from the cameras. There's no metadata like we're used to having today that you can link together. So why does this matter? You know, that finished show was probably standard definition, maybe 29.97 frames per second. The whole point of remastering the show is to make it a better quality, a higher resolution, but to do so, we need to go back to the original media recorded by the camera to get access to that higher resolution or to be able to do the conversions that need to be done and work that needs to be done. But with no metadata, how the heck do you do this? So, Brian, do you want to kick this off with how this all began? How, how did this job come in? Thanks, Jesse. I, I'd love to. So, uh, Charmed uh, shot on all 35 millimeter film. Uh, they did lay off to uh, DigiBeta and TSC 720 by 46 masters that were then uh, broadcast. 
So, um, you know, I, I'd love to set up the, the compare and contrast, really, because there's, there's options these days to how you reconform this. And um, initially, we started down a path and we changed that path after about five episodes. Early on in episode one, as, as we were uh, reconforming, uh, we realized the amount of time, the amount of people that were involved, uh, the amount of assets we had to touch. Uh, was all sort of eaten into the overall bottom line over those three years. You could see that really quickly. And, and we knew we had a budget and we wanted to be under that budget. Uh, and we, we also knew we had a timeline. We had to be able to complete all this, both the online reconform and all these VFX recreations fast. And we may think that three years is not fast, but you know it is fast for that many episodes that you, you called out up front. So the compare and contrast is, we started down the path and went, okay, we have all these dailies masters. Uh, they did dailies off to um, Beta SP, I believe, the Telecine dailies with Sync Audio. But Film Com Composer was used so they could do a, a 24 frame cut from a 2997 non-drop frame NTSC dailies master. Uh, they'd ingest that and pull the 3-2 out. So they had 24 frames and they do a pull down on the audio and all that good stuff. So. Then we look at that today and go, okay, well, that cut came from a 2997 tape. And, and fun enough, today we're trying to do it, even though it was 24 frame film master, all the ins and outs that Avid stored in the bins were for 2997 dailies masters. So we couldn't specifically use all those time codes. So we had to use a combination of media composer, old ALEs. Imagine going back to the 90s and redoing the process. Because we had the Media Composer project, we were able to go in, export an ALE, take that ALE and use that in a brand new project, a Film Composer project, or just Media Composer at true 24 frame, and actually ingest from those beta SPs. So then we could get all the time code metadata. So back to metadata, which you brought up, we had to get all that metadata propagated in the bin. So even though we had the project, the metadata doesn't necessarily propagate right away. And, and you're talking about the dailies beta SP tapes yes, sir. because originally it was laid off. Well, they shot on film and then they made it. Well, wait, the Digi, it, Digi beta was the final master, but beta SP for the dailies tapes that were captured into Avid. Exactly. Through. Yep. The dailies was <laughs> okay. created through, off the ranks Intel when they were doing film dailies. Okay. So we had to capture a bunch of those. So we had team members set up capturing those. We ran into situations where all of a sudden we may have not had an ALE for certain cuts. So we actually had to capture the beta SP, manually go in and make the cuts, and then use the slates on the beginning of that each of those takes to actually manually enter the metadata. So that, that was fun as well. You can imagine how many people had to touch that to get all that metadata in. What kind of things are you talking about, though? Are you, like scene, take? Scene, take, the main thing. key numbers for film, feet and frames. And we had to calculate out the feet and frames. So it related because when the Telecine master captured with the key numbers, that's how we could translate film, feet and frames and rolls over to time code. And honestly, the first couple of rolls, it was great. It's like, oh, all of it's there. We have the ALE with the metadata, no big deal. And then we hit our first reel where it didn't have that. And we're like, oh, what do we do? And we had to look at the content and go, well, we have it here. We can manually enter it. Let's do it. And um, then it was a balance. Well, how many of these assets uh, are going to have ALEs? 
and how many are not for the projects where we didn't have a full project. So it, it became pretty convoluted. But ultimately, we were able to go through five episodes doing all these manual conforms. Hmm. I see. Okay. And so how did... How, where, when and how and why did this take the turn into looking at that AI approach? Yeah, I think we knew within the first couple of episodes that it was taking longer than expected. Uh, we knew we could complete the job, but we'd have to ramp up our um, basically our team, our team force to, to get the job done. So we started to look at other approaches and uh, that, that's when we uncovered the, uh, the Video Gorillas team Bigfoot product and sat down sort of for our first meeting there to discuss with them. I see. And I'm just curious, at that time, where did you sit down with them? Yeah, if I recall correctly, the first time we met with them, uh, they they came on site and it was at Photochem uh, 2801 in their first floor conference room. I see. Okay. Yeah, I just asked because the, the first time I met them, it was, it was quite the experience. I went and met Jason at a house in the Hollywood Hills. And I was told the address and I was just told, okay, this is our office. And we went in. Now, this was early days before they have gotten to where they are and had the success they've had. And this was in very early days. So I get there and it's and it's a residential house in the hills. And I'm just like, ah, recheck my GPS, figure out where I am, go to the front door and a child answers the door and I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm at the right place, but is, is a guy by the name, name of this name here? And like, oh, yeah, I just go around the side and I and then I go over and there's a garage there and I open up the garage and there is this Silicon Valley startup looking facility in this garage. It was hardcore. They had a couple hundred terabytes sand. They had tons of gear and and they're doing perceptual AI-based conforms. It was ridiculous. And then, you know, I don't know, for, maybe this is normal for people in LA or San Francisco, but as a kid that grew up in a small town in Ontario, Canada, this was crazy for me. I'd never seen a startup like that before. I love it. I know. I'm picturing I'm picturing Silicon <laughs> Valley, you know, something, the, the the TV show, not the actual Silicon Valley. But oh, yes. yeah. It was, it was yes, just like that. You walk in, you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm looking for Bigfoot. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, they've come a long way and they're definitely uh, they're a company and have a product that everyone I think should be aware of. So let's talk about how that worked, how you integrated their product into your workflow and, and how exactly that worked. Yeah, so um, these guys were great. The main two members, uh, their CTO, Alex Zukoff, and uh, their CEO, Jason Brahms, they were involved from step one through the end of the process. And, and their, their team grew during that process as well uh, because of us and because of, of others using them. But being able to have a, a machine learning AI involved in this was, it was definitely our friend. Um, it saved us money. Uh, it got the job done faster. It saved us on, on just end users having to apply just worthless amounts of time to things that didn't need to be done. So. Basically, they had a process where they, they could create a decision list for us. Every cut has to start with a, at a decision list. And obviously, this cut was done already. And so since this cut was done and had all the footage, we needed something that could create this decision list again and directly relate it to that film. So we had to make a decision at that time to take this approach. We had to scan all the film. And we went, okay, well, we can do that easily. 
we have a couple of scanners, a couple of spirits. We can put both of those to work and we can scan 24 seven with, with uh, you know, one person loading those up and just filling up our sand. And so we made the decision that, okay, this is worthwhile. We'll scan everything we can. We, we scanned, we technically, we overscanned. Uh, we scanned everything in a 2048 by 1556, a, a full four by three, 35 millimeter full K raster. That's so we had edges of, of film lines and everything in there so we could do auto stabilization as well during that mm. scan. So we could stabilize a, a bunch of the film up front so we didn't have to do that in a post process, which saved us time also. I would say it probably saved us about 90% of our stabilization. So that's the super great feature built into that. So we scanned all that film. Uh, the same 2398 master I mentioned that we converted up front through the Terranex from the NTSC 72046 digibetas, uh, we provided that to the Video Gorillas team as an H.264 MOV. So now they had a reference cut. They use that reference cut as a guide and they use their machine learning to go through and do scene detection on it, broke up all the scenes. It created the initial EDL for the entire set of content. So now you have your, your record side EDL, the finished cut, as it related to the broadcast master from that H.264 file that we converted. So great. So now we have that master, but we still have to relate that to the film. So this is where the really, really cool machine learning portion uh, and scanning and looking at every pixel of all these film scans was really incredible. So they, um, they had to look at all the film and relate all the film to that H.264. And then because of the metadata of the film, they could build a full EDL with the source side and tell us exactly what film lab role it came from. How did they get the film though? Because they, they weren't taking canisters of film where had you captured all of that and given them proxies like an H.264 of everything that was captured from that somehow connected to the film? It, yeah, right on. Um, so we thought about a couple of different ways. And initially that that was their suggestion, right? OK, I, we just need proxies of all this so we can do this. And we thought about it and went, wow. This is so many seasons, so many episodes, just sending mm -hmm. data back and forth. It doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, it just seems time consuming. It's wasting everybody's network bandwidth, slowing down the process. So essentially, we decided to set up a, a one-off station for them to do the processing on inside our firewall. So we built a station, gave them two-factor VPN authentication into that station for their team members. and they would remote in, run the software from there. That station was connected to our SAN. And ultimately what we did is we got one SAN volume put in place specifically for this project. We knew the project was going on for an extended period of time. We knew we had After Effects stations. We knew we had dailies, conversion stations, film scanning stations, a Bigfoot station, <laughs> all having to connect to this to do the job, the online editorial stations. So we went, okay, we need a SAN volume with this much space, this much bandwidth. And it wasn't enough space to handle all eight seasons. We could handle about three seasons at a time. So by the time we were rolling on to season four, we had to be getting rid of uh, content from season one. But you were scanning all of the negative from season one to put onto that SAN so they could access it? 100%. Yeah, all scanned hmm. at 2048 by 1556, 10-bit DPX, 
so you can imagine what Oof. that's 12 uh i think that's like 12 megabyte 12 megabytes of frame for 2048 by 1556 um yeah. so ate up a lot of storage but they could access all that in real time now because they were fiber channel connected with the host machine we gave them even though they were vpn and over a nice little one gig network uh, they had high speed fiber channel to, to the sand so they could access all that data to compare all those pixels mm-hmm. as fast as the cpus could go so we put a nice high powered machine in and they processed away understood so now just to make sure I'm, I'm following this. So you've got your DigiBeta Final Master that you captured. You gave them that H.264. They scan that. And essentially, they're creating a visual fingerprint of every frame, essentially. And then when they get all of the scanned film neg, they've created fingerprints for every frame of that. Now they can compare the two, figure out what matches, and then, like you said, create the EDL from that. Exactly. Yeah, I actually ran some tests with them because I thought this was a really fascinating idea for promo with them often having terrible metadata or no metadata. When we get promo requests, it's like handwritten notes or something. (laughs) Or they're just like, hey, we we watched a DVD and on reel one at five minutes, that's the shot I want. You know, like, what if they could upload a QuickTime and we had all these fingerprints of the neg? What if then we could do a visual conform instead of a metadata-based conformer? Maybe for our reality shows, what if we could do our conforms visually as well? So I ran some tests and I got to say, I was pretty impressed where I did a lot of things to try to break it. So I, I made the dailies on one black and white The camera original was color, obviously, in this scenario. And then another one I made, the camera master was anamorphic. The dailies were now normal. They were square pixels and everything wasn't squished anymore. Another one was a really dark shot. Another one I made the dailies super crushed, lowered the gamma quite a bit. And another one was to take a landscape shot with not much movement in it. One that I thought would be very tricky to know exactly what frame it is. And for all of those, it was, it was, it was like 98% accurate for all of those. Uh, the, the landscape shot was a frame out. And even the, the, the one with the gamma dropped down quite a bit that was already dark to begin with, that was a frame out. But it was a frame out. And it was pretty amazing considering the challenges I threw at it. But I'm curious if that was a similar experience that you had, how often were you getting involved with the EDL that they turned over and having your online editor have to manually tweak things? Yeah. Well, I should mention that the fingerprinting and database basing that you mentioned is super, super important because both for your, your conceptual idea for promo and for us, because that allowed us to take all that scan media, the older stuff offline, and even if they cut in old footage in a later season, the database housed that information and we could go back to it. So, oh, that's cool. yeah. So, I mean, you know, you think about promo, you could store stuff in Glacier Storage really cheaply uh, and use a database like Bigfoot to go back and retrieve what you need from, from the metadata in that database. Super, super valid concept. Hmm. I can also add, sorry, um, how well it worked on the main title sequence, which have you seen the main title sequence? It's got crazy overlay graphics and colors and glows and stuff and Bigfoot was learning in the main title sequence or short snippets of these characters it could pull those out eventually too it was it was great well that's a good point though about titles and visual effects your your film neg 
that it was fingerprinting is not going to have the effects. It's not going to have titles across the screen. Then you've got your final DigiBeta master that you converted into an H.264 for it to index, I'll call it. I guess at that point, it's looking at a percentage like, hey, this was a 75% match because obviously there's portions of or pixels within it that won't, right? Right. Yeah, we would come across that a lot in the visual effects. You know, you've got all these crazy particles and smoke or fire, whatever's going on top of the shot. So there's a good amount of time we'd have to go back to editorial to say, oh, it, you know, she's looking this way in this shot, but you gave us this shot. Where, or she's blinking here and she doesn't blink in this shot. So they had to go back and pull the shot again for us. I see. And now this was a, a, a service they offered. It wasn't like they just said, here's our software. They actually provided someone, like you said, remoting into the system at your facility. And they were doing this as a service. It wasn't just here's the gear. Yeah, that's that's correct. It was a it was definitely a service. Hmm. And and that helped them to adapt and adjust their algorithms to make them better. Um, because obviously their goal someday is to have it so perfect that it could just be software and not a service. Um, then it's mm -hmm. it's much more of a moneymaker. But yeah, even from from episode, you know, five or six that we started using Bigfoot on compared to where we were finishing in, in season eight, their algorithm got so much better. So up front, I would say the first couple of episodes, because of the amount of VFX that were in there and flip-flops and this, that, and the other, uh, they were going back and maybe helping to retrieve 30 to 40% to of the shots and fixing those up. And that's when they realized, oh yeah, we, we definitely have to have a person involved with this. And then by the end, I feel like we were under 10%. You know, they were they were doing really well with the amount of content they were able to, to match. Wow, that's great. So, okay, now you've got this EDL that can connect back to the camera original media. However, the finished show originally was 4x3, i.e. for all the non-super technical people. You've probably fallen off by now. This conversation has gotten pretty technical, but it's square. <laughs> but I assume this was delivered 169 HD or even 4K, right? It, it was. Uh, it was delivered 16 by 9. Uh, and that's a big reason we shot uh, or scanned at 2048 by 1556. We did all the finishing for the entire project through to the end, all the um, DRS work, cleaning up noise. Uh, it's 2048 by 1556. And it wasn't until we had the final color master that we punched into that and did the, uh, the, the tilt and pan. I see. So it was a, it was a punch in though. It wasn't like you were doing extensions on shots in any way later. I guess you, it's not possible, right? You're, it's not like you're going to add visual effects to make it wider on some shots. It's always going to be punching in. Yeah, for the most part, you know, when they framed it originally, when they when they shot it, you know, we have a full aperture that was scanned, but they framed it sort of inside the middle of this giant four by three full app. So they've got a lot on the left and right sides that they didn't use. I see. And so it wasn't like headroom was super tight and, and right. you could actually crop in without being too worried about getting super close on everybody on like if originally it was a two shot. Now, all of a sudden you're like, well, wait, yeah, does this have to be a, a close up on this person now? They kept it pretty consistent, you know, like kind of the center. Every once in a while, they would zoom in, and you know, you didn't have anything to work with because they they wanted to use the full the full aperture they had. But for the most part, they framed it in the center. That was the original four by three mm -hmm. cut that went went to air. But then we went back and you know cropped it for sixteen by nine. It gives us that extra left and right. But sometimes 
there's a crew member over there or there's sometimes there's a you know extra gear someone left a toolbox or something sitting over there you know that all of a sudden like we didn't care <laughs> yeah. about it and you know 1998 because they weren't framing it that way but now all of a sudden we've got all this stuff that we have to get rid of which for visual effects that was a, a lot of cleanup there yeah well that's a nice segue into just looking at visual effects in general on this so in regards to those I guess I guess this is a, this the first question would be are you recreating all of the visual effects from scratch? I'm not familiar with what would have been the process in 1998 for archiving visual effects in any way to now take advantage of reusing those assets or yeah. whatever it was. Uh, well, luckily, the artists, the original artists who are working on uh, Inferno's Flames, Henry's, they archived. Most of their work, I mean, you know, there's a lot of times we were working on something like, where's this asset? And we couldn't find it. But they archived all their work out of the box onto a DigiBeta. And what they would do is lay off maybe the source material first in a pass. Then you'd lay off, uh, maybe you're pulling a mat from a green screen. So you'd have a mat pass. Then maybe you'd have a pass of smoke, and this would be over black. Then maybe you'd have a pass of fire, and that'd be over black. And then maybe you'd have... The first pass, or the version one of the pass. We came across that a lot, too, thinking about it now. Here's a version one. It looks kind of close to what <laughs> was in the final show, and you zip past the tape, you know, 15 minutes, like, oh, there's the actual one, they, version 12, they finally, you know, agreed on. And these are all individual elements. It's still going to require a lot of work to piece this all back together. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, for us to be able to use these visual effects, when they're, they're standard def, so we have to up-res them. And we do have a process that uh, is called Resonate. It was a software, right, Brian, that was developed by uh, developed by Photochem Software? Yeah, yeah. Bill Schultz, our uh, senior vice president of engineering, uh, developed the, the software and the process, basically up-res uh, sharpening capability to take something from NPSC, take it from the interlaced world that it's in, place it into a progressive world, uh, make that all look nice and give us uh, give us some metrics and capabilities to increase and decrease sharpening. But what was interesting, though, about the interlacing that you just said, uh, a lot of these visual effects rules were built Progressive 30, which had another issue of when we're doing pull downs and pulling things out from the master, that these were like Progressive 30 and not interlaced or with fields 29 and 7. So that was an issue. It's just the main title definitely was all... Hmm progressive 30 frame which was interesting when you pull out three two and you never get a consistent 24 frames so. out consistent cadence exactly yeah so when you're looking at these archives these backups to tape of these visual effects assets it's not like it perfectly lines up with the show these are individual little layoffs to tape so how would you know when to use where are you literally watching the final program and saying oh there's some smoke over there let's go look for that asset like how would you even know <laughs> that yes that's an excellent question that was another learning curve uh for us as well so the editor would go through the list pull out the visual effects they'd go to color they'd get colored to match the ctm then they would come to us the graphics team and we had about four to six dedicated after effects uh, artists working on it and every once in a while we'd have a flame artist who would help us out so we would get that they would give us a reference from the CTM. So we've got 25 frames from the CTM, 25 frames of the new scan that's been colored uh, from editorial. Then what we would do is figure out how to, one, either recreate the graphics, the visual effects uh, from scratch, 
or using this resonate process, take some of the original assets and sort of marry them on top, kind of a hybrid sort of workflow. So I see. things from scratch, we would build, you know, we would rebuild anything that was like on a green screen or wire removals or things that were glows or God rays or, you know, things of that nature. We would rebuild from scratch because there's no reason not to go back to an original asset when you can, if you're just doing a green screen or wire removal, you wouldn't go back and pull something from a standard dev to use. And morphs, we did a lot of morphs and we redid all those from scratch. So that's the majority is when we can rebuild from scratch is what we want to do because of course the quality is going to be so much better than using any old asset. I see. And in those situations where you're building something from scratch, are you still trying to match the original style and quality that was in the original program? Because I can't help but feel like another interesting question about this whole process is there may have been times when the visual effects are now looking a little dated. <laughs> you know, something that was hip back then might not be hip today. How true did you need to stay to the show when recreating these things? Or were you like, you know what? Technology has improved. We can make this look a lot more realistic now. Yes, that is a fun, interesting <laughs> question because, <laughs> you know, it opens up so many questions to redo it. You know, if you redo it, you may piss off the, you may, you may upset, excuse me. Are we doing PG mm -hmm. or PG-13 here? Uh, right, it's all, I've had, I've had F-bombs <laughs> dropped on the show. It's all good. <laughs> you may upset the fanatic Charmed fans, and there are some fanatic Charmed fans out there. You know, all of a sudden you're changing the look of their signature orb in or their whatever. And, uh, yeah, you'll get a nasty uh, Facebook comments. So there's one issue, one reason not to do that. Another issue is just sure. money, time, budgeting. It would have been a logistical nightmare to figure out. The, these orbs and these things have a very particular storyline, that is a, a story through the eight seasons that if you change someone's look who's a demon or who's a got a certain glow about him you change that now you have to like open a conversation of how do we change it why did we change it what's it supposed to look like and we're also changing the intent the original intent from the writers the directors mm -hmm. the producers from back in the day the creators and you know, personally i wouldn't necessarily well on an artistic side i would love to go back and use all our fancy new plugins to make crazy awesome graphics visual effects but the intent was to keep it as close to the original <laughs> for all those reasons i just mentioned but it would have been fun yeah we i see we all were kind of in fact we kind of did a first the first couple of tests we did on the visual effects were you know kind of smoke and little particle things and yeah we're using all of our plugins and after effects and like making it look really big and fancy and like no 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 <laughs> tone, tone that, that down. down yeah bring that back <laughs> So on that note, were the creators still involved? Like, were, were some of the original producers brought back on to make sure that you didn't screw it up? <laughs> that you didn't have a crazy uh, social media <laughs> backlash against, against what's just been done? So we mostly dealt with the producers at CBS. Mm -hmm. And I don't know on their side, that could be another question to, you know, the, the producers that we were dealing with or, yeah, if they had any connections to the, the original creators or not. I see. And you had mentioned editorial. However, we haven't really touched on that. So an editorial team was brought on to be involved in this? Or did you mean your editorial team? Like when I because when I hear editorial, I just can't help but think offline. Yeah, it was our online editorial team. So we needed somebody oh, okay. to that take sense, that yeah. EDL, that list that came out of uh, Bigfoot, uh, relink yeah. it to all the data, do the VFX pools for, for Chris's VFX team. 
mm-hmm. et cetera. So we, we needed that sort of online portion of the post process still there. Of course. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Oh, and a title and, you know, right. All the other things at the end, there's like, we had, we had the, the team sort of doing like the offline portion, Brian, wouldn't you say? And then we had the team who did the final uh, out to tape and title. And well, I guess when I, when I started thinking about it, it was a mishmash because our, our colorist would actually do some of the, the pan and scan, the tilt and scan, the framing. They did all that. Colors did all that. Really? And so what were they doing that in? Was that a resolve or a base light or something else? Uh, that was in the uh, the Digital Vision Nucoda. Oh, okay. Great, great final color tool. A lot of great capabilities. Restoration capabilities built into it as well. Um, so super flexible. I see. Interesting. And so in regards to the color work, now that we're on that, was that a similar kind of thing? Keep it looking as close to the original show as possible? I assume they want they didn't want you straying from that look. 200%. It better match or we're in trouble. <laughs> Just like the VFX. It, it, it was so, I mean, it's great because it gives you a vision and you know what you have to do, right? And then sometimes you sit back and go, really? We're redoing this because of that? It's so close. It's so close. But, but nonetheless, you know, it gave you a direction. You knew what you needed to accomplish. And the, the two producers on the show that came in, they were stringent and they required us to uh, have a methodology in place so they could look at the original NTSC master side by side with the finished product for HD. So um, we didn't necessarily show them the NTSC master. What we did was we went back again to this, this 2398 Terranex conversion that we made. And we put that into the Nakoda on a, on a video timeline. And we had the finished pan and scan master in there or um, tilt and scan master in there. And what was really cool is we were able to use the stereoscopic 3D functionality of the Nucoda, and we were able to take video track one with the HD master on it and video track two with the NTSC upconvert and send them out two different SDI pipes uh, like they were stereo. But we took those two pipes and sent them to two different monitors. So every time that they would come in to do a QC process, review, review and approval, they'd go into a room, we'd have the two monitors set up, and boom, they watched them frame accurately in sync with each other down and they could just stop, scroll back a frame or two, look, and they could they could hunt and peck easily and, and see every detail, what they wanted to about the original compared to the work we did uh, a- until it was perfect. That's really cool. And so is that the, the, the function to make that happen in the new Coda? You had set that up in like a 3D stereo mode, or is it just that you can like how did how did you trick it to do that? That sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, we we had to basically trick the project into this dual mode so we could so then we could route the tracks out separately. Interesting. I wonder there's um what is it called? Uh, there's a new streaming or Quibi. So I wonder if in something like a Quibi show, if you could do something like that. I've heard of those not only having different framing for the very you know you turn your phone vertical and all of a sudden you've got a vertical frame and you turn it horizontal you got a horizontal frame but i've also heard about shows on quibi where they actually have different content depending on how you turn the screen 
Like that, that's an interesting solution to that, where when you're working, you could work in stereo mode. <laughs> uh, interesting, yeah, and see the two different outputs simultaneously. That, interesting thought. Maybe we'll look at that. We've, we've done two seasons of Quibi shows so far, so. Okay. Could you, and we you, have not used that. Would you rotate a monitor on its side so it's vertical and one horizontal? I mean, it seems like. Well, now, now you're getting real. You'd... It's crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like it would help if you can. <laughs> it's a lot for your eyeballs to uh, navigate, you know, a horizontal and a vertical. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. The, the different framing is one thing. The idea, the notion of different content, I think, is is really interesting, and that they're they're supposed to line up. But anyways, <laughs> to go back to the upresing and the reframing, etc. So actually, more specifically, the upresing. I remember when HD came about. There was this whole uproar from hair and makeup and wardrobe and everybody and oh my, it's going to affect our work and we've really got to take a, more time and a, a care with certain things. Then it was a whole thing with 4K as well. I'm just curious, when you did this uprez, the original show may not have had to deal with certain things that maybe now you can see. Was that a thing, the way you all of a sudden had visual effects that maybe they wouldn't have had to worry about with the SD delivery originally you know like or do you have shitty wigs <laughs> beautification yeah you know yeah I, honestly in the beautification i don't i know we did not do a lot of beautification and i don't know if that got happened after our pass or not i don't think so here's my concept on that uh none of those actors at the time had contracts that protected them for beautification. And isn't that typically what happens now with HD and 4K shooting? You know, the actors and actresses have contracts that require certain amounts of beautification, softening, that kind of thing. Since those contracts weren't in place uh, and the assets were already owned, they, they didn't have to waste time doing that. I mean, I do know that there were some times where the, the CBS producers that we worked for did want to go back and, oh, you know, there's a pimple, there's a darkening under the eyes. Can you fix that? There's something. So they would do that. But it's also hard to know you're watching this standard FCTM and that's all you have to go on. You mm -hmm. didn't necessarily know that they fixed, you know, a bruise that the actor had. You know, we wouldn't know that. So the only way you would catch it is if you're watching them side by side and you're like, oh, that has, you know, they have a bruise there and they don't have it here. Can we fix that? And that did happen on occasion after the fact. So it is kind of interesting to think about the visual effects polls. You know, originally we just go off the visual effects polls from editorial. And it's like whatever they're catching. If it looks like a visual effect, pull it and we'll work on it. But then after mm -hmm. the fact, after QCing it and after the client looks at it, a lot of things would come up too. Like, oh, in that window in the background, there's something there that shouldn't be there. You know, continuity things. And, um, mm -hmm. So that did happen quite a bit. Yeah, especially for shows that are remastering now in HDR, where they were just like, whatever, that window's going to be blown out. Right. <laughs> now all of a sudden you can see through it. Yeah, and it really takes the human eye to catch those things because they're not going back through show notes to see, here's everything we did to this show. You know, there's just no time for it. And also just to dig through the archives to find binders of notes, you know, you're not going to do that. That sounds like an interesting concept, though. How could we catalog metadata to track all of the various work that happened on a show for future use? Yeah. No, that's an interesting concept. An idea. You know, you kind of have to go there to your, your yeah. uh, post-production supervisor, I guess, to sort of build this, 
this list that somehow would be attached to the footage or the EDL or I mean, if you had an EDL. But as a now. post facility, if, if you had like a project management tool connected to your database, I, I, I would like to think this could stay within the, the, the post facility and not get the post super involved in, in the, well, I guess you'd only track what you did. You couldn't track, you know, the sound facility did this and that, and the visual effects team had this many versions. Well, I, maybe you could track that. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're right, you're, you have to sit down and, like, you know, figure out how it could work. But it could definitely work, and it would be valuable down the line if you ever needed to recreate something. It sounds like it would have helped you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, just kind of like figuring it out and and uh, hmm. oh, let's fix that. Okay, or you know, a lot of times in the four in the original broadcast four by three, they wouldn't remove a wire or you know, like there's like there's a let's say a glass. You know, someone's doing a magic spell to pull a glass towards them. And the wire is so mm -hmm. faint, and they're like, oh, you're not going to see it, or so dark. But now you've got this super high res scan. You're like, oh, there's a wire there. Can we remove that? So we had, we had a lot of that. I see. And after three years of this, obviously, you probably regrouped and said, okay, next time we take a job, we can change this, this, and that, and you're even more efficient, I bet, now. After three years of being in the trenches on a <laughs> job know, like Brian, this. That's a good question. <laughs> we're both like, we're, well, we haven't really stopped to assess, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure we, we have learned, we have learned a lot, and it's just like anything with a job, right? If we had another one and we were running right into it, we would just keep going with everything we learned. If the next one doesn't start for two years, uh, we better be looking back at our documented metadata <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to make sure we can yes. pick up where we left off and do just as well. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Chris and Brian. Thank you, Jesse. It was a pleasure reliving the past three years of Charmed. Thanks, Jesse. This was great. No problem. This has been very insightful as well for me. I'll never look at an old show I see pop up on a streaming service remastered the same way again. <laughs> so thank you everyone else <laughs> for tuning in. Your support is very much appreciated. Stay tuned for what the reveal of our next episode and guest will be on social media. And until then, that's a wrap.